This is Power Pivot with Leela Sinha. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Power Pivot, the podcast where we talk about ethics, leadership, power, and community. We're having these conversations out loud in public because power can corrupt, but it doesn't have to be that way. Today's guest is Kimberly Shepard. She says, as a teen whisperer, I introduce teens and young adults to the options available for their future. I specialize in students who are marginalized, unmotivated, or undermotivated, who have learning differences, or who are struggling to feel seen, heard, and understood. Welcome, Kimberly. It's such a pleasure to have you here. Thanks, Leela. It's great to be here. So I thought we would start. You've got some really interesting work going on right now, and I have been um, I've been privileged to be a little bit backstage for that process. So as we've worked together, I've become really excited about your project. So would you tell our listeners a little bit about you know about what you have done, what you've been doing, um, and then where you're taking your work? Yeah, I'd be happy to. So it's very exciting to me um, for. Almost nine years, I've been working individually with students, many of them students from families who are well-established and um, very financially comfortable, but also students who are underrepresented students of color. And when I say underrepresented, I mean in higher education, which is uh, sort of the focus of a lot of the work that I've been doing, and also with students whose, um, whose families are, are marginalized with their financial challenges. So kind of a, a two different approaches and two different groups of students that I've worked with for, for almost nine years. But those have all been on an individual basis. And what I am moving toward is a, an opportunity campus space, although not a school, where students, and my idea is students approximately 16 to about 26, when our full brain development has occurred, (laughs) and um, who can um, go to a place and be exposed to the options for their future in one location. Um, I want them to have the ability to touch, feel, see, smell, hear, to sit with options, not just be told, oh, here's something that you could do. You could be an electrician. I want them to actually have a a, a grid, a board that they can work on, a circuit board, so that they know what that feels like. Um, And then I want them to be given support in that process as they're learning about these options for their future to then say, okay, wow, this really excites me. What do I do next? And for them to have right there in one location that um, those support systems to move them forward to the next steps. Yeah, my business coach, Jen Kem, frequently talks about how you need to have have that kind of concrete experience of doing something before you know if you want to do it or not. You know, she says, never run a program, a long program or a big program without running a beta first, because you're not just finding out if it's saleable. You're not just testing the market to see if people will engage with what you're offering. You're also testing to see if you want to do it. 
She says, I've, I've piloted some stuff where I did it once and I was like, I don't want to do this. I hate this. I don't want to dread getting up and going to work. If I wanted to do that, I would have stayed in corporate, right? So, <laughs> oh, true. And, you know, thinking about especially young people coming into the workforce and really having had no experience of themselves or very little, very limited experience of themselves in a workplace and not like, how do you know if you're going to like messing around with pipe fittings all day? You don't until you try it. You don't. And you don't know if you could run your own business. You don't. I mean, what I also want to do is capture students that are not excited about a future that's something that we don't think a lot about either. You know, there's a lot of students out there, I don't know what I want to do next. And then there's students who say, I don't care. I don't want to do anything next. Um, Because the system has left me so behind or so far out that I don't, I don't see myself in it anymore. Or maybe I never did. Yeah. Or like Herb Cole's concepts from, I won't learn from you, um, where he talks about, students actively resisting learning in a system that they know is designed to oppress them. Exactly. Yes. I think there's, I want, I want this, this campus environment to, to provide everything that an individual would need for a given day while they're, you know, being exposed to these various, I call them modules right now, Mm -hmm. you know, so we would need childcare. We would need, you know, uh, a food, you know, area, a cafeteria type of, of area. Um, and what that might look like, you know, it could be different uh, depending on the location. But, um, you know, I want, I want it, there to be full access and support for all of the individual's needs. Which makes perfect sense because if you don't have your basic Maslow's hierarchy, if you don't have your basic needs met, you can't pay attention to whether you like pipe fitting or not. You just show up blurry eyed, do the thing and leave. And I don't know if this is part of your model or not, but certainly even in my high school when I was growing up, there were spaces where students ran the businesses that supported the students, right? So like the auto shop students ran an auto shop and students could get their cars Mm -hmm. fixed at the auto shop if they want, if it was simple enough, if they wanted, right? And so, you know, I hear you talking about food service and childcare and I'm like, those are viable career options. Probably some students would gain valuable insight, not to necessarily entirely run it, you know, it would have to be run by somebody who was not rotating out after seven weeks or whatever. But, you know, there's so much potential there for shared learning, for collaborative learning, for community. So when you think about this campus that you're creating and you think about the ways in which it's different from the more traditional top-down, you know, factory model educational piece, where do you see a shift in power distribution? I want the, you know, it's funny, when I very, very first started my, my individual uh, counseling business, I talked about putting students in the driver's seat. And I made actually a little video where I sat in my car behind my steering wheel and shot the video about it. Because I think that even with traditional high school to college planning, there's this idea that there's, there's this force at work that's outside of everyone and no one can really control it. It's sort of magic and people get adults, even parents get caught up in this idea that, Oh my gosh, you know, we can't do anything. We can't change anything. Yes, we can. And I want to shift the power so that 
the the young people who are stepping out into their future have power can say you know what i i think that's a great idea this you know this module over here for the trades but i'm not interested in the trades fine what are you interested in and you know so that there's not this you must you have to you know things begin at this time and end at this time those are the only options um, i want to i want to shift everything so that young people feel that you know they can have a say in the not only the things that they're being provided but also in the direction that that takes and what that looks like and what it feels like because particularly the the students that i am thinking will be most will most benefit will will really be served best by this you know they they've had the least power of all in 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 our educational systems um completely how do you think having agency changes the student experience <laughs> i think it changes everything because when an individual feels when a young person in particular but i think all of us truthfully feels that you know we we have no no stake no um you know we are not tied you know uh, intrinsically to a process to a to an experience then we at some point feel that it is not ours and you know when you the, the more disconnect there is there the less um the less relatability the less investment um there there is on on the part of the individual and so again i think you know shifting it over to where um you know this is for not just you know me as a as an outsider creating this campus you know poof i magically created and you know and people come like field of dreams um <laughs> i want i want this to develop from the community in a organic way so that there is investment um from the place that it it exists not just from my mind that's an interesting phrase you know so that it it develops from the place from which it exists and not just in your mind. Um, and I think there's an interesting piece in there about the kind of power that you're taking on in this project and the ways in which you need to be really aware of your power and aware of the ways in which that could go very badly. Do you want to talk a little about that? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that you know, and to cut to the chase of it, or the the uh, the quick of it, um, you know, I can't I can't go into this project as a as a white savior. You know, I'm a I'm a middle aged white woman um, with you know a graduate degree. I I can't you know bulldoze my way into a community and you know build something and say, look, come. <laughs> Instead, I need to go into a community and say, hey, what do you think about partnering with me and to build this, to create this? Is, you know, is this something that would support you? Is this something that would support your children? Is this something that would support your business, whoever I'm talking to? 
Um, because I, I think the, the, the very easy thing to do is to, you know, is to, uh, oh, I'll build it and they'll come, that, that attitude. Um, or I know best. Um, I have ideas based on experiences, but I don't know best. Um, I, and I want to create something that is valuable to the people that it serves, not that is simply valuable to me. So what do you think the early stages of power sharing are going to look like in your process? Eventually, of course, you're going to have an institution. But in the process of developing that institution, what are the early places where you're really looking closely at how to how to make sure that that power rests in the community, even, even in the process of choosing a community? Because you haven't decided where you're locating this, have you? I have not yet. No. <laughs> so, so that is all part of it. Um, you know, if I were to, I'm in Cleveland, Ohio right now, if I were to do it here, um, you know, I, I mean, I've already been in conversation with lots of people about this, this idea about, you know, who it could serve. Um, and I've talked to, you know, students, I've talked to business owners, I've talked to tradespeople, but I, would prefer actually to locate this in another city. And in doing that, I'm going to have to create all the relationships that I have here somewhere else. Um, And that's exactly what I need to do over the next couple of years is go and meet and extend my hand and, you know, ask the questions, listen, you know, be in community with people who know the community so what you're really talking about is belonging. Yes. How do you find that belonging and power affect each other or balance each other out or strengthen or weaken each other? I think, you know, I've, uh, I've always, you know, I grew up straddling a lot of different worlds. I, I grew up in an extremely rural community, which people always laugh at because I grew up in New Jersey and they don't think there are any rural communities there. (laughs) But, um, you know, my entire life, there was no cable as in cable television that ran on my road that that didn't exist. It was too rural for the cable company to bother with our street. So I, you know, the coming from something that was, um, that was isolated and then as a, as a young adult, I moved to a city and I've lived in cities my entire adult life. I also come from two parents and an entire family that never went to college. So I, I also straddle those lines. And instead of think, looking at it as, you know, well, I'm per- a person who doesn't belong here, as in, for example, maybe I didn't feel like I first belonged in college I just always looked for the, the connections, the places where I felt I fit in and in, and I sought to strengthen those whenever I could. And so I tried not to like look long and hard at the places where it was clear I didn't fit and didn't connect, but instead, you know, really say, okay, well, you know, here's some people who seem to be, you know, able to work with me. Let's see what we can do about connecting more deeply with those people. You know, I'm not going to ever be someone who grew up in an urban environment 
and that, that I can't be that. And I can't be someone for whom higher education, for example, wasn't an option because it was something my family, even though they hadn't had it, focused on very seriously. But what I can do is say, okay, who, who already knows this and is willing to talk to me about it? And how do we then create something together? What, um, you know, what are our, what are our shared values? What are our shared ideals? And I, yeah, I think that's, um, those are the pieces that I think I'm going to have to focus on the most as I, as I set out to, uh, to find a location or to decide on a location. I, I mean, I have, I have a short list, so. So as you were talking, what I w- started to think about is what I think about as what I often frame in my mind as an access mindset, right? So there's, there's a way in which having some, for me, having some kinds of privilege gave me an attitude or a mindset of access and a kind of entitlement, not entitlement in the way that we often use it, but entitlement in that I am entitled to have the system serve me. Mm-hmm. I'm entitled to succeed in this system. If this, if I'm not succeeding in this system, something's wrong. The system is not functioning the way it should, and I'm going to fix it, which is, of course, not the experience for a lot of people. And I'm not entirely sure in retrospect that I was always right about that. But but believing that, having that access mindset, allowed me to approach systems in a particular way where there's got to be a way for me to do this. I just have to find it. Yes. And as an adult moving through moving through some of the, the social services systems and other systems that we have set up in this country, I've had a variety of experiences with that mindset. <laughs> um, it was it, in school, it was pretty effective in, you know, at the DMV, it's sometimes not as effective. <laughs> and it's that delicate thing because you don't want to move into that place of negative entitlement, right? That place yeah. of, of everybody owes me something because that's, just not the person that I want to be. And it's not the person most of the people I know want to be. But but when we look at the range of possibilities and we think about, you know, this this campus that you're creating and we think about these conversations and we think about all of the piece all the moving pieces that are involved, one of the things that I start to wonder is how do you create that access mindset? How do you create the space for that access mindset? Because I'm imagining that some of the kinds of privilege that you did have allowed you the space that you needed to create it for yourself around some of the kinds of privilege you didn't have, say, as a first-generation college student. Mm-hmm. And so I'm wondering how, what kinds of things you think that, that you can do or that one can do or that a culture can foster to allow more people access to that, to that mm-hmm. sense um, and the, the particular structures of thinking that go with it. Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, when I even think about it for myself, you know, where did I, where did some of those things come from? And, you know, I mean, I, I was, I was raised with a tremendous amount of support. Um, And I think that that's also what I think about when I, when I consider this, this campus, this place is I want there to be support because, you know, right now, I mean, Americans, across the board are struggling in areas, things like healthcare, for example. 
you know, if you don't know how you're going to deal with, you know, uh, an infection or your child is, has a fever, how can you possibly focus on other things? But if you have support in the, this is, you know, here, this is how you can get assistance with, with this, you know, health issue, then you might feel like, oh, okay, I can, I can breathe a little bit and maybe now I can think about something else. So I, I see this sort of, I don't know, net or web of, of interconnected support systems that will sort of shore up, if you will, the, the feeling of, of just being cut off or free falling that I know that a lot of, of students that I've talked to have, um, you know, they, they don't think anyone is, is, or anything is going to catch them if they fall, because that's been their experience, their, their lived experience. Um, you know, I, I had a group of students tell me one time, everyone leaves us, you know, they, they get tired, you know, the, oh. the, um, I was working in an, in an after school program. Um, and yeah, they, their experience had been, and they'd been in this after school program. They were in high school. They'd been in the program since they were in sixth grade. And they, they could tell me all the people that had left the program. I mean, they could name them all and they could tell me things about them and when they left and why. And, and, you know, <laughs> and it was really, really difficult because I mean, I certainly didn't think I was going to be retiring from that after school program. So I, you know, in my head, I'm thinking, well, what's going to make me any different? You know, I, I'm going to leave them too. And the only thing I could tell them was, you know, I may leave this role, but I don't have to leave you. You are worth investing in. You are worth continuing to be in relationship with. And, you know, the only way, of course, that they, and I mean, I'm sure a lot of them didn't believe me when I said that. I, I, they wouldn't have any reason to believe me. So, you know, the only way to make that a reality and to show them that, you know, yes, you know, you do really have this support is to, is to live it and to provide it ongoing. And I think with, with my campus idea, I, that's what I want is there to be this, this, this safety net, this, you know, this place of, okay, you know, here you will be caught you will not fall. We won't let you just disappear. You're not invisible. You matter. Yeah. What I'm hearing you describe is community. Yes. And, you know, in some fantasy long ago world, in theory, we provided that for each other. And then in some dystopian fantasy world, we have abandoned it in favor of industrialization and capitalism. But I'm not actually sure that it's that clear cut because communities have always abandoned people that they didn't find convenient. Yes. And I, yeah. And, and, and a lot of people, I mean, <laughs> in fact, I would assume, 
I would, in fact, hope that the bulk of the people that I, I want to serve are going to probably be the least convenient people <laughs> in many ways. And in many of my, the circles that I walk in, we have jokes about being the island of misfit toys. Mm-hmm. And that concept is so compelling for any of us who have been um, excluded because it's a place where everybody who's been excluded and everybody who understands that experience of exclusion comes together and forms a community um, informed by the trauma of exclusion. Mm-hmm. And um, again, in this fantasy ideal world, the trauma that we carry with us informs us not in a way to reproduce those patterns of trauma, although we know that brains do that, but in a way to to encourage us to act in a different way, to change our patterns of behavior, to change the experience we've had so that other people don't have it. And and so I think about this community within a community, because you're talking about going into a, a city community or a town community, and then within that city or town or region, you're talking about creating this smaller community and the smaller durable community. And and the beauty of community in this model is that community provides continuity that individuals never can. Right. You can never promise you're not going to leave. You just can't. I mean, you right. can get hit by a bus. And especially <laughs> with people who have lost and lost and lost, if you promise them you're staying, they're going to look at you and go, fuck you. You can't promise yeah. that. I know you can't promise that. So just stop making And now right. I don't believe you when you say anything because this is a completely exactly. unrealistic promise you just gave me. So, so instead being able to say, I might leave, but the community will persist. I might leave, but here are the structures that are in place. I might leave, right. but you still have a place. You still have a home. You still have a, I, that, that longitudinal persistence is something that we provide in the same way that singers sing really, 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 really long notes in choirs. Mm -hmm. People who haven't sung in groups may not know this, but when there's an extremely long held note that just has to go on and on forever, what happens is that singers um, take catch breaths, but not all at the same time. So instead of hearing the entire choir go, (gasps) you won't notice (laughs) because singers are dropping out and, taking a breath and coming back into the note and, and filling in for the people who are next who need to take breaths. And you don't even, as a choir, you don't even usually plan it out. You're not like, well, these three people and then those five people. You just trust that the inherent randomness of when you feel like you're running out of air will allow you to, to vary it enough that the, that the overall sound is continuous. Yes. And that's yes, the thing uh, you're talking about here. It's so many yeah, I love it. So one of the interesting things that's emerging, you're my sixth interview. And and one of the interesting things that's emerging as I'm doing these interviews is um is this pattern. I knew community was important. And I knew community was important. If you're a power holder, I knew community was important for for holding you accountable. And we'll get to that because I think that's a really interesting conversation for someone in your particular role. But but what's also interesting is that community is emergence emerging as the locus of power. Yes, I don't. I mean, I don't like to think that you know no individual can you know can make change. I, I don't know if I believe that exactly, but I mean, when I think about the, the massive change 
that has occurred in, in, you know, in, in the world and history at different times, it was never a person. It was, it was, you know, it was maybe a person, you know, who then said, Hey, you know, 300 friends of mine, let's, you know, let's start this, whatever. But, you know, no, no single solitary person is, is going it alone. Nobody goes it alone. And we, to, to think that we are going it alone is such, is such silliness, really. I mean, it's, it's, uh, I mean, it's, it's absolutely ridiculous. There's, there's nothing about, I mean, unless you are, you know, living off the grid and the land and, you know, truly, I mean, and there are individuals, of course, who do that, but the rest of us are, are living in a, you know, as I said, an interconnected web of, of support of all kinds. And, you know, we, we don't think about all of those little pieces, but the more privilege you have, of course, the more access to that web you have, that network, and the less you have, the more holes there are in your, in your web, in your, in your connectivity. And, you know, I, I can't go and stitch up all the holes for every individual I ever encounter, <laughs> sadly. <laughs> um, but perhaps if I gather enough community, we can create a stronger web under a group of people in a community, as a community. I don't. I don't know that access is that to, to the web is that simple because I know a lot of people who are um, who are, are privilege compromised in one way or another and have incredible networks and in fact the network is why they're not dead literally why they're right. not dead right so I think that sometimes stress connects us stress forces us to recognize that we don't we never roll solo. And I would even say those people who live out in the woods are connected to an interconnected web of all existence, but their interdependent web of all existence is like squirrels and trees and fewer humans. But, but to forget that, that humans are only a little piece, I think is, well, Australia is on fire. Um, (laughs) Yeah. So, and I think about the kind of hubris that's necessary to think that you don't need a network, that you don't need other people, that you don't need individuals. Like that's, I understand. Special kind trauma, of insanity. Well, I understand <laughs> from a trauma perspective, especially if people have com- continually left or continually hurt you, at some point you curl into a little ball and you're like, okay, fine, I'm going to do it all myself because everything else is dangerous. So I get where it, where it comes from, but Mm-hmm. I also think that that in so many places in our society, we see people deciding that they can do it all alone or trying to decide that they can do it all alone. And especially if you have a new idea, especially if you're out front running with this thing that nobody's ever seen or heard before, and you're surrounded by people who are telling you it can't be done. And here you are saying, excuse me, I'm busy doing it. Hold that thought. <laughs> Right. You have to be able to do that. You have to say, excuse me, I'm busy. 
And in so doing, you have to create distance between yourself and the people who say you can't or shouldn't do something. However, when you do that, what you do is you end up isolated. You end up without the community that you need. And so my my contention over and over in these interviews, my contention is that as as innovators, as disruptors, as people um, out front, as intensives, we have a moral and ethical responsibility to gather communities of our own around us and communities that are ethically engaged, communities that are engaged with making the world a better place because it is so possible to um, start out saying, excuse me, I'm busy, end up being like, yeah, all those people are just collateral damage. Right. No, I think you're 100% correct. And I, you know, I mean, I, as an intensive and also, um, you know, my, my four tendencies, uh, which is Gretchen Rubin's model of uh, what motivates me, um, which is uh, nothing motivates me. Uh, I motivate me only uh, when I feel like being motivated. So (laughs) rebel personality. And that can get very, you know, well, kind of, uh, you know, I don't care about you. I'm, you know, I'm doing what I feel like doing when I feel like doing it. And I think, um, you know, as I've, as I've gotten older, uh, which I, I uh, sometimes hate saying those words <laughs> in that way, but, but it's true. As a younger person, I, you know, I often fell into the trap of, well, I will show you what I can do. You don't think I can do it. I will show you. And I think now my response is more, well, wait a minute. Okay. So you don't think I can do this or you don't think it's a good idea to do it. Tell me more about that. Why? And not, not that I'm going to, you know, quote, win everyone over. Um, but there are things, there are lessons to be learned in there too. Um, you know, I've had a couple of people say some, some things to me about this project already that really got me thinking about it in a different way, um, from a different angle. Um, you know, you and I talked about, um, you know, the, the, whether it could be a for-profit or not-for-profit. And I also spoke to a, um, a, a friend who's a not-for-profit uh, attorney and had a really long conversation with them about it. And, you know, it, it actually, the two of you changed my mindset on that, um, <laughs> which you know, is not easily done sometimes. <laughs> so, so that was, you know, I mean, even things like that, I, I think there's, there's value in, in a, in having conversation, even with the people who say you can't do it or it's not worth doing. Yes. I think there's, there's often, assuming those people are in good faith, I think there's often value in those conversations. And also there's a moment where you have to be like, okay, I've had enough. I've had enough. (laughs) (laughs) That's enough. I I hear you. I understand what you're saying. And uh, I'm going to go do this thing over here. And you, if you don't think you want to come with me, that's a completely legitimate decision, but I'm going to be over here. And, yeah. and so then at that moment, um, I think I'm interested in how we select or how we create or how we gather and how we prioritize selecting or creating or gathering these people. Because I can tell you, I live in startup world out here in the Bay. And when you're starting a company, a tech company that's supposed to become a, you know, 
unicorn company and make whatever millions of dollars in whatever short in extremely short runway um, to keep your investors happy, right? The thing that's right in front of you is I have to bring this this concept to market, I have to market it, and I have to sell it. And often, they don't even remember the marketing and selling part. They're just like, I have to create the thing. I need a viable, minimum viable product, and then I have to create the thing, and then I'm go, 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 go. And it feels like frivolousness to take the time to be in community with, for example, other founders. People are like, I don't have time to talk to founders. Why would I talk to them? They're not working on my product. I'm not working on their product. And, and, and so I'm interested in the ways in which we choose the people and in the ways that we gather those communities and then in the ways that we prioritize being present to those communities. I mean, we see it in, in ministry too, where we're supposed to have collegial gatherings. Now we have a code of ethic, a code of conduct that includes being in relationship with one of one another. And sometimes I think that's the only thing that keeps us coming to collegial gatherings because mm-hmm. we all feel overwhelmed. We all feel busy. We, it's hard to get there. Yeah, no, I, absolutely. And I, you know, I worked in higher education for a number of years and I, I distinctly recall more than once being in a meeting where we were, you know, developing something, uh, you know, a, a a new plan for something. And, you know, I would, I would ever so slowly raise my hand and say, have we considered the impact on the students with this? And, and I would, it was always amazing to me when I said that, the, the blank looks I would sometimes get. And I'd be like, well, you know, just, just a little reminder that we're a university and we don't actually exist without students. So. <laughs> You're so picky. <laughs> but this is but this is what happens. I mean, you know, people, I mean, higher education, I mean, at least the, the places that I worked were all, quote, not for profit. But I mean, everything was driven. Everything was driven by enrollment and, and income, everything. So even even in those cases, I mean, I think that you you have to have that's I think part of your your power balance is, is having the people, and I'm not suggesting that I'm this person in this case, but I need the people that are going to say, uh, Kimberly, what about, you know, what about these students? What about, you know, what about this 22 year old over here? Um, and, you know, hopefully in fact, a, a 22 year old themselves saying, um, yeah, that doesn't work for me. So there, there has to be, they're, they're, I mean, in order to, to create something, and again, it is a community ultimately, not just, not just I call it a campus, but it really is a community. In order to create it and have it thrive, there has to be a full balance so that there is no, you know, there, there may be a, uh, there may be my signature on some paperwork, but there can't be only my voice in, in any meeting or any space, because then I'm, you know, then I'm just uh, listening to my own echo. Right. Right. And I think that's really important to have systems of accountability built into the institution, right? If you're, um, if you're a founder of a company, then it's often you need to have 360 feedback systems or something like that. And if you're, <clears throat> and if you're in a nonprofit institution, it can be a little bit different. It depends on what kind of nonprofit you're in or what kind of, you know, it, every, every company has its own or every organization has its own structures for internal feedback 
um, kind of up and down the power structure because almost always there are people at the top, whatever that means, um, making the final decisions where the buck stops. And, and, those positions can be particularly isolating. And that's why people hire coaches, right? That's why you end up with CEOs with executive coaches, because that's somebody who's outside the power structure entirely. I mean, yes, the CEO can fire you as a coach, but if you're hiring me to make sure that somebody tells you when you're messing up, it doesn't make sense to fire me when you're messing up. And if you do, then you're not a good fit for me. As a right. as, as your exactly. coach, like I I cannot coach or consult with somebody who's just going to kick me out if I say something they don't like. But yeah. but in addition to systems of one on one systems of accountability, you know, at that kind of peer level, I think there's something really really important about about being in community with other leaders. You know, and it, and some of my understanding of this really is informed by by those collegial gatherings, by those clergy collegial gatherings. And they're still dicey. You know, we're still in an institution. We still have power imbalances even within those gatherings. You know, senior ministers and junior ministers and ministers with enormous congregations and ministers with no congregation at all. Or you know, and so there. It's not like it's a perfect system. But but if you're, I'm I'm really coming to this place. And if you're, um. If you're starting a new thing, you need to be in community with other people who are also starting new things. You need to be in, yeah. com- in a really, truly in a community of your peers. Because mm-hmm. at some point, for example, that 22-year-old you're talking about, right? That 22-year-old is in your institution. Right. And that, A, creates a power imbalance. There's no mm-hmm. way it doesn't. But right. B, there are things that are your responsibility as a high-level leader in that institution that you cannot discuss, frankly, with a rank-and-file member of that institution. Right. You just can't. And that's the reality of human behavior. It's not their burden to bear. It's not only not their burden to bear, it's also sometimes you have things to say that because as a leader – your job is the welfare of the entire institution. Right. And sometimes, even with the most rigorous ethical and moral standards, there is still going to be some kind of collateral damage. You're going to have to take a hit over here in order to keep that from completely tanking. Right. Of course, yeah. And you can't say that to the stakeholders in those pieces of the institution most of the time. Right. No, that's true. Our culture has not provided us with the robustness of, of personal development necessary to sit in front of a leader who's saying to you, listen, I know this is going to mean that you can't continue in the institution, but for the good of the institution, I still have to make this decision. Yeah. And not take it personally. Like the amount of, of personal development and and solidity and security in other parts of their lives. And you're talking about people who probably don't have a lot of other security in a lot of right, cases. Right, exactly. Like the, the number of personal resources you have to have to be in that, in, in that conversation and be in it um, in a way that's not damaging to you is just too great. So you can't have that conversation with that person. You can have that conversation with your coach and you can have that conversation with a peer group if you have a peer group. Right. 
Yeah. So it's, I mean, it, it is taking the, the time um, and nurturing a, you know, a, a group of, of peers of people doing, you know, similar types of work in, you know, other communities or in the same community if that's available. But yeah, I, it's going to be a critical part of the process. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think it'll be really interesting to see over the next, I don't know, 10 year, 10, 15 years where we go with this, because, you know, we've been watching for some time, we've been watching, you know, Uber and WeWork and <laughs> Tesla. Mm-hmm. And, like there's a yep. pattern here, right? There's a pattern mm-hmm. here and it's led by intensives. <laughs> Those of us who start new shit cannot look at that and be like, oh no, you know, um, Elon Musk is definitely an expansive. Elon Musk is so intensive. <laughs> and he's one of those people that, that folks are like, well, he's a genius. Not sure I'd want to be a genius like that though. Right? Yeah. And there's, there's this kind of de facto community that rises up. And so how do you keep from being in a de facto community, you know, in, in social services and education and in those kinds of fields, the de facto community is often cynical and a little bit bitter. Yeah. So what, what do you need as a rising leader to have a different kind of community? You know, I, I mean, I think that I have to, I have to seek out people who are not just, not just doing these things, but who, who share the, um, you know, I, I have a friend who says her optimism is like, um, she's like a bubble. She just, she floats up naturally. And I said, that's not my optimism. I said, my optimism, and I've, I've described it like this my whole adult life, it's, it's relentless. So <laughs> my optimism is, okay, yeah, no, we're going to take that hit, but we are going to keep going once we take that hit. It doesn't, I don't just buoy, I don't float. I definitely do not. <laughs> it's not my, not my nature. But um, although I do appreciate it in my friend, it's such a, such a beautiful quality to be around. But it's it's not my it's not my innate nature, and I think back to my very first social work job. I was a domestic violence counselor and great crisis counselor. We manned a hotline and we had a shelter, and you know, women. Um, we primarily served women who um, were being physically uh, abused or assaulted in some way, and you know, many many times those women um, would seek shelter. And then they would they would leave, and they would uh, often return to their abusive environment for a variety of reasons. And you know, I was twenty three, twenty, yeah, right, right around there. And you know, it was it was so hard uh, to to understand not not so much why I, I understood the why, but you know in my mind, it seemed like, well, we should do more, you know, our, our, our work should, should do more to support the women so that this didn't happen. And I remember my boss, um, she, 
she'd immigrated from India and she, um, she was, uh, you know, I'm six feet tall. I, I think Terry was probably four eleven, and she, but she had this, she had this presence and she said to me, well, you know, that's, uh, that's, that is the work, you know? And she said the average woman at the statistic at the time was the average woman will leave, um, seven times before she leaves for good. And she said, you know, when they go back, she said, then we look for the next time. And she said, and we, we see it as one more time toward the seven, we are getting closer to the seven. And she said it was such conviction. And, you know, she, she'd been in social work many years and she told me she'd had clients who, who died. Uh, you know, I mean, things, you know, we lost two clients in the years I was in domestic violence and I, you know, it's, they were horrible, but, but that idea that, you know, we're moving closer. We, we are not, no, it's, it's not, it's not perfect. We are, we cannot fix everything. We cannot mend every hole. Um, but we are not also not going to give up and we're going to keep moving forward. That's, I think the mindset that I have to align myself with other people doing this, you know, these types of things. Um, you know, I don't, I don't want to connect with other people who are, you know, magically fixing everything. And I don't want to connect with people who, you know, aren't going to, aren't, aren't in it for the long haul, aren't in it for, you know, forever. Mm-hmm. Aren't in justice work or aren't in their particular project or. I think in justice work. I mean, I, you know, I long-term, you and I have talked about this. I mean, long-term, you know, my dream for this type of community would be that it, that it isn't just in the one location that I choose, that it can be in ultimately multiple locations, um, that, that the model can be duplicated um, and, you know, and again, grow in different communities and suit that community's needs best. Um, but, you know, am I going to promise anyone that I will forever be connected to this? I, I can't, no, I can't, I can't do that because maybe there will be something else that will be something that I need to do. But I am committed to this and to creating this and creating it, making sure that I, again, I'm not, that it isn't about me so that if I am ultimately connected to it or not, that it continues to thrive because it, it isn't me. It's its own thing. Right. Right. I mean, it's, it reminds me of um, one last time from Hamilton, that song, right. Where Washington is, is like, if I step down now and I don't run again, then the country learns that it's like its own institution. It's not a cult of personality. Yeah. And if I don't step down, that doesn't happen. Right. It sort of blows my mind to think, about the ways in which, you know, for all the terrible, terrible atrocities that were committed around the American Revolution, it blows my mind to think about the ways in which reconfiguring concepts of national leadership transformed everything and influenced everything in that moment in history. 
Yeah. And the ways in which we understand our institutions to be separate from ourselves. <laughs> when I was in high school in church, I essentially restarted the youth group from scratch. It had it had come apart and lost momentum for a variety of reasons, partially institutional, partially just, you know, sometimes four-year institutions made of students cycle through. And, and so I, and with the support and with the inspiration from, uh, from other youth in other places, I restarted, I restarted the group. And I had, um, again, privilege, I had access, I had um, a very, very supportive board president with an enormous amount of clout who later went on to be the moderator of the Unitarian Universalist Association. Um, but I didn't really know how much clout she had at the time. All I knew was that she was the board president and she thought youth things should happen. Um, and she was delighted. She had been waiting basically to find somebody to back because she was like, this has mm. to come out of, out of the youth. So I can't make it happen. But as soon as I showed up and like whispered a whisper of possibly being interested in leadership, she was like, I'm on it. And she was so good about supporting me. Her name was Denny Davidoff, um, and she died a number of years ago. But she was a real, a real treasure for me in a lot of ways. Problematic in other ways, but a real treasure for me in a lot of ways. And she, it, you know, she provided that kind of institutional support that I needed. But I started the youth group from scratch. It was my baby. And I realized as I moved up into my junior year that if I didn't put some kind of succession plan in place, it was going to die as fast as it had started. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, and I don't know where I figured, I don't know how I figured that out. Because I was like a depressed 16-year-old. <laughs> but somehow, and you know, a lot of brilliant 16-year-olds have done a lot of brilliant things, but I don't think I was... I'm that extraordinary. But what happened was I came up into this position of leadership. I looked at the way that I had arrived there and at what I wanted to leave behind. And I was like, oh shit, this, my junior year needs to be my last year of really solid leadership. Next year, I need to be mentoring people. I need to be stepping yeah. down. I need to already be on my way out before I leave. And learning to to understand that and to let go of these like precious precious creations of our <laughs> hearts because they're so precious to us i mean it's i have i'm not a parent but i always think it must be a little bit like parenting because because you create this thing and it's precious and you have this vision and the more it grows the less it does what you expected it to do <laughs> And then at some point, at some point you have to be like, this is not mine anymore. It's its own thing. And, yeah. and I have to trust that I've created enough structures and an, enough institutional support that when I step away, it doesn't fall over. And, and so no, I, I think it's a very apt analogy. <laughs> and I think that the, the, um, I think that the ways in which we as leaders remain, make sure that we are in community with other leaders helps us in that because when we're in community with other leaders, then we're also able to maintain that differentiation. 
I am a person right. in this gathering of other people who each have their own institutions that they're shepherding. Mm-hmm. And also there's that institution, that institution over there. I am here. That institution is over there. It matters to me. I'm engaged with it. It is not me. Right. Because we can't afford to have it be us. Yes, for many, many reasons. <laughs> so many reasons. <laughs> um, mental health is one of them. It, it, like I literally, when, when things aren't going well in my business and I've forgotten that I and my business are not the same thing, I feel terrible yeah. about myself. Yeah. And the only salvation for that is for me to do things that are not business related. Yes. You know, like I sell my art, but it's not really a business. It's a sideline. And so I'll go make art mm-hmm. or I'll get involved in a conversation with somebody that has nothing to do with anything, or I'll go into the park and stare at the trees. And sometimes I think about business when I'm doing that, but I'm aware that I'm not in my business when I'm doing that. Right. Well, I, you know, I, I use this analogy with, with my my students a lot, and it's it's very true for us as well, is that, you know, I say to them when they say, well, you know, I'm not, I'm not good at school or I'm not, you know, I haven't been successful and therefore, you know, like what, what use am I? And I was like, think about the people that love you most in the world that you, you know, you're just, they're your people, you know, your, you know, your, your, your heart connections, you know, whoever those people are. And that when I think about them, none of the people <laughs> that are my people, that my heart connections, not a single one of them cares what I do for a living. None of them. <laughs> They don't, they're not interested in my expertise in those areas whatsoever. Not at all. They love me for me. And that's, I mean, that's, that's the crux of it. You know, I, and that's, that's what I, I tell the, uh, tell my students, you know, your, your people do not love you for your, you know, graded biology. They just really don't care. At root, love is not transactional. Correct. If it's transactional, it's not actually love. It's something else, which is fine, but it's not love. And when you find love in whatever form, romantic love, filial love, you know, platonic love, when you find love, you realize, I tell people this all the time and they look at me and then they go, oh, you realize that love isn't something you can deserve. It's too big. It's too big. There's no way you can be a person who deserves love. The only thing you can do is accept it with gratitude, to receive love, knowing that it's this enormous gift that you couldn't possibly have deserved. It's like it's, it's outside the realm of deserving. It's outside the realm of transaction. Yeah, you're right. And when you realize that you can't deserve it, then you can release yourself from trying to be good enough. To deserve it. Yes. Yes. So we are coming to the end of our hour. Do you have any final words about power and community and your work? Anything you'd like to leave our listeners with? <laughs> I I am not sure that there's anything additional <laughs> that I could say um, that that I um, that I really feel that I haven't said, to be honest. I really, I, you know, I, I feel like um, in terms of community 
And as I say, you know, this, uh, this idea of uh, creating, you know, a, a, a net of people, you know, of not leaving people behind, that's, uh, that's something that, um, you know, is, is what I want to step into. And yes, I, you know, I quote, will will hold power in this, in this um, experience, but um, it is not my thing. I don't, I will not own it. And I will, um, you know, I, I'm looking to, um, you know, to, to build it alongside other people. And where can they find you if they're interested in supporting your project, supporting your work, hearing more from what you're doing? They can find me uh, right now at ksaeducationalconsulting.com. Uh, okay. ksaeducationalconsulting.com, and that's a URL. Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. Yes. All right. And um, do you have a name for your new project yet? Do you have a working title or are you just calling it The Canvas? Well, the working title that I have has been Another Road. And uh, I'm coming up against some, um, some, uh, there there already exists some things with that name. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm mulling that over right now. But that's been my working title, Another Road. And are you in a position now to accept contributions? Are you looking for other kinds of support? What what can people do to support the work that you're doing? Um, or should they just get in touch with you? They people can certainly get in touch with me. And yes, I am. I'm. Um, I'm actually this year will be. Um, you know, will be making my first trips to. Um, you know, start scouting locations and talking to people in different spaces. So I'm, I welcome, you know, all types of support in that. Um, and there will be, you know, I mean, I'm hoping to have a, um, a campus donated, but there will certainly be expenses, um, you know, related to the, the creation of the campus that, uh, that is needed. So absolutely. I would love for people to get in touch with me. Excellent. Excellent. Well, this has been a pleasure. Thank you so much for being here. This has been the Power Pivot Podcast. We've been talking with Kimberly Shepard, the teen whisperer, who is starting an exciting new campus-based project, which will combine community and educational opportunities for young people, especially those who have struggled in the more conventional educational systems. Thank you for listening to this episode of Power Pivot. We'd love to hear from you. Please rate and subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. To support Power Pivot and get early access to new episodes, go to intensivesinstitute.com slash Patreon. For information about coaching and consulting, or to book Leela for a talk or workshop, go to intensivesinstitute.com. <laughs>